0: It's over 9,000!
1: super elite warriors to final forum a podcast for the discussion of all things dragon ball i am your host jelly an elite recruiting member of the frieza force on a mission to find the best warriors from across the galaxy to join the greatest army of all time and i am joined as always by my new recruit co-host
0: this is the bikini hey man i'm uh uncomfortable
1: your armor again we're on a frieza planet just get refitted
0: No, that's not it. Well, I mean, this armor is uncomfortable, but that's not it.
1: You've been on edge since we got here. We're among friends. Our ship is being fully repaired. Look at the beautiful pink hue of the light shimmering off the architecture of these gloriously Frieza-style buildings. The blues and greens of the grass and the mild, moss-covered, craterous landscape reflect that pink and create a calming contrast. Relax.
0: Being among friends is precisely why I'm worried. We've been without a long-range scouter for months. We've been drifting through slowly through space with no FTL drive for weeks. I think we picked up some sort of tail at some point. I'm just waiting for us to join up with the group in order to launch an offensive.
1: Talk about paranoid. The Ventuvi circles the planet a couple times, a once-in-a-lifetime occurrence, and you become such a nervous wreck, you're inventing wild conspiracy theories. Nobody would dare challenge the combined might of a planet of Frieza Force warriors.
0: I think you're being overly dismissive of quite a bit of evidence.
1: Okay, let's talk about your so-called evidence. One, a Ventuvi is supposedly following us. There hasn't been a Ventuvi sighting in hundreds of years, so nobody knows their behavior. It could well just be some sort of mating ritual or random erratic behavior.
0: I'm a biologist. Uh, This isn't mating behavior and it isn't random.
1: You admitted, uh, once or twice before, that you don't get into behavior as much as physiology.
0: Yeah, but mating is physiology.
1: Two! Our long-range scouter is non-functional. Big deal! You say active jamming of our signal. I say long-range scouters can break for any number of reasons. You say it has to be caused by outside factors. I say it could just be the natural progression of things. But
0: all long-range scouters? On an entire planet?
1: Maybe that's the natural disruption of the Ventuvi. You don't know.
0: I do, though. That's what I'm saying. This is my field of expertise, and I've done the research. You're basing your claims on, I don't know, trying to make yourself feel better?
1: And it's working. I feel more at ease already.
0: You're just ignoring the facts and evidence and science and making wild, baseless claims.
1: That's your opinion, and you're entitled to it. Mine is that things are fine. Why can't we just leave it at that?
0: Because facts aren't opinions and you're not entitled to your own facts.
1: Facts, schmacks. Facts are meaningless. You can use facts to prove anything that's even remotely true.
0: How the hell have you survived this, long?
1: And speaking of survival, let's talk about how some Dragon Ball heroes are surviving encounters with the Red Ribbon Army. And yes, that's what we'll be talking about today. We'll be finally delving into the Red Ribbon Army. Uh, we're just going to be talking about episode 34 of the anime today, which is Cruel General Red. So,
0: start of episode 34, Goku's getting up to some monkey business with Colonel Silver. The Dragon Ball gets lost monkey down the business and into a river. However, the search for the Dragon Ball gets called on account of rain they have to pick up in the morning once the weather breaks. Goku's Dragon Radar proves to be much more precise, and he flies off and finds the Five Star Ball, only to have an explosive encounter with Colonel Silver. Silver doesn't realize he's fighting the number two martial artist in the world and quickly finds himself in second place. Afterward, Goku commandeers a robot and a plane and flies north in search of another Dragon Ball. Instead, he finds Bitter Cold, a crash landing, and a mysterious red-haired girl. Silver, on the other hand, gets sent back to HQ where he's reprimanded by General Red. Red then decides to call General White up north to warn him about Goku's approach.
1: Uh, hey, while we're, while we're doing a recap... Yeah. Do you find it... Okay. Are, are they implying that they are killing Silver?
0: kind of seems that way, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, it's like implied, but, actually, but it's
0: but they don't actually like show him being killed, which I guess is understandable because I mean it is somewhat of a kids
1: show, right? Right, but it's it's weird because it's it is a kids show, but it's also an anime and they don't tend to shy away from death at least, you know. Really not, yeah. They don't make it very explicit, I guess, is what I'm saying. It's like a little bit. I think this is the last time we see we see Silver, though. Like,
0: I mean, if if I were to theorize, I would, th- I think what they were trying to do, especially because there's some scenes in there with Silver earlier on in the episode that I don't think take place in the manga. Mm-hmm. And I think this is another instance where the anime was trying to build up a character to have a larger role than they were initially intended to. And I think maybe they wanted to have, instead of Silver killed on screen, they just take him off screen so that maybe they could bring him back at another time if they needed to. Maybe. But that's just a
1: theory. That works as an explanation for me. It is just, it's, it's weird how a show that, you know, has anyone died on this show yet that we've seen?
0: I don't think so. I think the closest you could make an argument for would be Master Rabbit's henchmen on the moon, seeing as a human being can't live on the moon, but they seem (laughs) to be doing okay at the end of that episode, so who knows?
1: Yeah, so I guess... And I'm trying to think where the the manga would be at this time. I don't know if anyone would have died yet, really, either. Although, you know, they don't shy away from saying that Goku stomped on his grandpa and... They don't shy away from, you know, showing Goku, like, killing dinosaurs and eating them and things, you know? So you'd you'd think they'd make it more explicit, is all I'm saying, right?
0: Yeah, I think I'll stick with my theory that they were planning on bringing him back and it just never happened.
1: I don't hate that theory.
0: Anyways, so, Toriyama now decides to do what he loves best and inverts the narrative. Again, rather than having Goku train in isolation for a battle in front of the world... He will now train in and through the world for a battle in confinement. Toriyama then also shifts the battleground from a horizontal ring to a vertical tower. It might seem like a no-brainer to just slide Goku back into the world of the first story arc and have him train in the world of Journey to the West, but Toriyama doesn't like to do what people are expecting, as we've seen multiple times now. Plus, Goku's already journeyed to the West. Now, it kind of makes sense that he should explore it a little bit. This also allows Toriyama to employ a lot of his favorite tropes with like fish-out-of-the-water moments and have Eastern culture Goku encounter Western culture without Bulma or anyone else to sort of help translate the experience for him. Uh, as with his understanding of Chinese culture, Toriyama gains this knowledge of Western culture through watching movies. So Goku will encounter characters inspired by James Bond, Star Wars, Indiana Jones, Terminator, Alien, and a bunch of his other films, his favorite films. Also, the more Toriyama starts to play in Western culture, the more simplistic and the overall messaging and culture becomes, probably because Eastern culture has, like, thousands of years of history influencing its, its entertainment media and blends concepts from Buddhism, Hinduism, Taoism, Indian culture, Chinese culture, and Japanese culture. Uh, but Western pop culture, meanwhile, has comparatively, like, a fraction as much backstory and is generally steeped mostly in Christianity and Judeo-Christian religious symbolism. But we'll plunder through what we can from every nook and cranny possible to talk about here, though.
1: Yeah, and that—I mean—that's not to say that well, Western culture doesn't have its share of influences, right? But some of that influence, especially with American culture, is, in fact, from the East. So, you know, you're you're playing right back into the the culture that we've already talked about to some extent, right? Um, yeah. And then, yes, I mean. The, you know, Buddhism, Hinduism, Taoism Indian culture, Chinese culture, Ch- Japanese culture, you got all these kind of swirling things going around. And then, yes, for the most part, Western, particularly American culture is like Judeo-Christian, which, I mean, it's the most, you know, popular religion in the world, but it's one, I mean, yeah, there's a million different versions of Christianity, I guess, but they all kind of root in the same thing. But anyways, yeah, Goku now no longer needs Roshi. He has all the principles to guide him on his journey, to test his metal, and he knows the basic framework of discipline to help him through these adventures. He now though has a twofold goal, and for one of the only times he has agency and thrust of his own rather than just the pursuit of strength. Yes, he wants to pursue strength, that's one of the goals, and that's told to him by Roshi when they part ways. Roshi says something to the effect of, you know, there's stronger people than are at this tournament, go out and train so you can become stronger. But Goku also wants to collect the four-star Dragon Ball, the memento that his grandfather, Gohan, left him. So he achieves these tests of himself and furthering of his strength, one of the pillars of his goal, by pursuing the Dragon Ball, the other pillar of his goal. Toriyama claims that he strives to ensure there is no message in his work. We've talked about that, and we'll talk about it more over time, especially when we ultimately do an episode spotlighting Torishima, who very much thinks Dragon Ball has no message. But in trying so hard to take out any specific messages Toriyama injects enough of himself and what he sees as not being a message that, of course, then there's insight to gain from Goku's adventures. Every character Goku meets has a very positive trait and an underlying psychological weakness or flaw, and Goku then undercuts these weaknesses just by being himself, and as a result, their interactions shed light on Goku's character development as well as just the human condition. So how can self-confidence overcome doubt? How can battle strategy overcome brute strength? How can humility overcome pride? By, competing, by putting competing personality traits in contrast with one another, Toriyama just provides this insight into, at the very least, his own notions of the answers to some of these questions and his perception of how humanity as a whole can strive towards collective betterment. The battles are entertaining, and Toriyama knows how to make them all the more so with his art style, and he's actively trying to push these messages down. So fans often overlook these clashes of opposites in favor of discussing power levels or battle stagings, but there is subtext there for us. And one day we will have a discussion about clothing, and especially Goku's gi, but suffice to say for now that it's one of the tools that assists him on his way. By representing externally who he is on the interior, and where he's from, Goku is always showing himself both inside and out at all times to his enemies, and he's always keeping at the forefront of his mind his master's training and remembering where he has come from.
0: So timeline-wise, and we're speaking about the manga here, this arc begins as Dragon Ball's anime begins. So we start seeing Toriyama borrowing things he sees in the anime, and he puts them in the manga. Also, he begins working on video games at this time and uses concepts and skills he picks up from that work to influence his work on Dragon Ball further. Uh, The stress of writing a weekly manga, keeping up with the anime to ensure it's using his input when possible, uh, work on video games like Dragon Quest, causes him to gain weight, lose hair, and feel sickly. He thinks he has hay fever, but when he finally gets a vacation, it goes away, and he begins to realize it's the stress of work. Probably doesn't help that he also chain smokes while he works. But let's talk a little bit about the Red Ribbon Army. First of all, it's sometimes known as Red Ribbon with just one B. Some fans think this is a typo, but that's essentially how Japanese approximate the word ribbon. Uh, In the first chapter of this arc, Toriyama refers to them as Akai Ribbon, but then after Redo Ribbon. This could be another example of Toriyama kind of like making things up as he goes or making a simple mistake, or it could be deliberate. We're not really sure. But... The word Akai has some connotations that signify this as an army and also, in a more literal sense, is a very dark, crimson, blood-like shade of red. So he could have been trying to make sure his readers knew without question that this was going to be the new antagonistic force in the story.
1: Yeah, it's, I don't know, I I kind of could believe either one. (laughs) Like saying, oh, this, this dark army is coming, essentially, right? Yeah, but, but I then, also, you know,
0: in typical Toriyama fashion, he doesn't really have much to say about it, and so we're sort of left to just kind of guess.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, he also calls them Tor- Toriyama. That is also calls them the Redo Ribbon Goon, uh, and he uses this su- suffix "goon," which is inspired by *Common Rider*, where the various villainous organizations are always something "goon." Uh, I, I think like. In the English translation of the original show, it's Shocker. I don't know if that's like approximated in English to be like, you know, shocker Goon, whatever. But they're an army that's always trying to thwart the hero in Common Rider. And Common Rider is a Japanese Sentai show that's been running for decades, similar to Power Rangers, in that its characters undergo a transformation and that they remain, the characters themselves remain human-sized. Unlike Power Rangers, there's typically just one Rider. So in that respect, it's a little like Ultraman. Uh, I think there's rider shows with more than one rider and some with teams, but this one's a real major blind spot for me when it comes to Japanese tokusatsu entertainment. I know a couple things about Kamen Rider from having watched two whole episodes. <laughs> one, I, I got on uh, during the days of lockdown that we had here in space for our space pandemic. Ah uh, yes, that we the space had. pandemic. Yes, if you remember that. Uh, I got on a Skype call, a Zoom call with some buddies and we were drinking and we threw on Toku Shoutsu, which is um it's on like I think the Pluto streaming service platform or one of those like one of those ones that's like set of TV stations. Like like a Roku kind of. Okay. Or a, gotcha. com- or a comet. And it's called, and one of their stations is called Toku Shoutsu and they air Ultraman and Kamen Rider and then movies and MST3K and stuff. And we got on, we watched one episode and it was this episode where apparently, I don't know if this was just a thing in the 60s, the hot gift to give everyone is a cactus. That's the story of this show. This episode, the, hot, the new hot gift that everyone wants is a cactus.
0: Cactus is the perfect gift to give to somebody that you don't trust to be able to actually take care of something.
1: And the evil organization, Shocker, is turning all of the cacti into bombs. And, <laughs> <laughs> like, every time someone drops one, which happens way more than you would drop any plant, there's an explosion perfect and then there's an evil cactus monster and he like shoots cacti bombs out of himself it is it is just like unfiltered insanity and then the other one i think i mentioned it once before is the starfish hitler episode ah yes where yes you can look you can just google starfish hitler and you'll be able to find that easily and it's yeah hitler returns and he's now part starfish it's insane (laughs) <laughs> but i also recently did watch the movie common rider zo directed by keita amamiya he directed zerum and zerum 2 and hakider which are three movies that are awesome they all pretty have they all pretty much have like a as bare bones kind of straightforward plot as you can imagine and that extends to this common rider zo as well but like they all have great great practical effects work Kamen Rider Zio is a 46 minute made made for I don't know streaming or not streaming because it was like it's like a 46 minute direct to video movie made to commemorate the 40th anniversary of Common Rider in like 19 something uh, or maybe it was 2000 2007 oh god I'm butchering this now but anyways <laughs> it's very light on story but the effects work is just out of control awesome if you're into co- Tokusatsu at all. Just look up common rider and common is K A M E N Rider Z O, not like Z E O, just Z O. It's on YouTube. It's forty six minutes. It's super highly recommended.
0: It's only forty six minutes. What do you got to lose, folks? So, why red ribbons? Well, most likely it comes from surprise, some movies. Kung Fu movies Shaolin Prince and Eight Diagram Pole Fighter feature villains wearing red bandanas, and the 1966 Django film does as well. Toriyama has admitted that he's seen this Spaghetti Western and took special note of the gunplay in it while he was working on Dr. Slump. Toriyama has unsurprisingly never explicitly explained the inspiration behind the Red Ribbon Army, like just about anything else he's ever worked on, (laughs) nor their origins in universe, so we're kind of just left to speculate. But it's pretty easy to spot how they are a parody or satire of the communist and or Nazi regimes. Uh, Since they're largely Caucasian, they wear uniforms reminiscent of the Russian and German armies. The name even seems inspired by Trotsky's term Red Army to refer to the Soviet army in the wake of the Bolshevik Revolution. And is also a term which Mao Zedong would use to describe his army during the communist revolution in China. So remember, Dragon Ball is a product of the mid-1980s when the Cold War is in full swing, the Red Menace is real, and the USSR is still a powerful force. With Japan being allied with the United States, the fear of the Red Armies of both Russia and China very nearby was always on the forefront of people's minds in Japan. Much of the 1960s Japanese war films even dealt with the belief— that the Korean Peninsula would be the site of the beginning of World War III and Japan's proximity to Korea would make them one of the first targets of co- communist retaliation.
1: Yeah, there's a couple really good ones I, from I the also, 60s. I,
0: gotta, I have to admit I was wondering if Toriyama had ever seen um, Red Dawn, if maybe that had also kind of helped inspire this a little bit because it's like one kid fighting a Red Army essentially.
1: The time Does the timing add up? Because Red Dawn you know, is,
0: I, that would that would require probably digging a little bit deeper than I initially did. Red Dawn is
1: eighty four, so ah, maybe, right? Because when does this arc start? Does it start being written in right around that time? Right?
0: I would think so. Yeah.
1: That that would be something that the hosts of a Dragon Ball show <laughs> should
0: you, you would think they would know that should potentially know. Good thing we're not that show
1: exactly <laughs> <laughs> no i it, it's it's tough a lot of times when you're coming there, to this
0: this whole arc is just layered with so many references when, you're, when it would it wouldn't surprise me when
1: you're coming to this stuff from so f- far after the fact it's hard to keep real close track of you know if the timing would would work it's possible.
0: Yeah, that's good enough for me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Like I was just going to briefly mention, there's there's some really good 1960s Japanese movies about their fear of World War III. I think I've mentioned one of them before being The Last War starring Frankie Sakai. It's just, it's one of those movies that has that. I have a really strong affinity for movies and stories with like that dark fatalism to them. Where you really, really like the characters, and you really would actually be totally fine if the movie ended with, and they all lived happily ever after, but because you're coming to a movie called The Last War, uh, that's, you know, not how things work out. (laughs) (laughs) That's a really good one. That's... That is something, though, that I'm, I'm a big fan of that. Like, I'm a huge fan of the Planet of the Apes movies. I would totally be down for watching any one of those movies where just, and then they all lived happily ever after. <laughs> That's not ever in the cards. But speaking of movies, for some in cinematic inspirations for the Red Ribbon Army, let's look no further than James Bond and the villainous organization Spectre. They're both bent on world domination and finding themselves constantly just up against this one single individual out to stop them. They're both rigidly formed into an army-like reporting structure and discrete chain of command where the Red Ribbon Army is, you know, it has the typical generals and, and commanders and things like that. The specter is, like, numbered. There's number whatever, number one. Number one is Blofeld. And they're both populated by people who physically and mentally stretch the believe stretch the limits of believability with outrageous personalities or tremendous physical strength. Like Blofeld is like a very caricature looking. I mean, he's parodied by Doctor Evil, and then you have like Jaws.
0: Uh, that one's my favorite.
1: Yeah, but these are still very much human beings, right? They're not robots or aliens or magicians or anything explicitly fantastical. Bond villains are bonkers, but they're still people. And for the most part, so too with the Red Ribbon Army. Silver can handle a dozen men attacking him at once, but is not much of a foe for Goku. Later on, we'll see others who fight Goku, but they're still human. Again, for the most part, there's a robot or two thrown in just for fun. But the Red Ribbon Army is mostly just humans. They're also obsessed with the Dragon Balls, not only because that's the name of the show, (laughs) but, but also because being inspired, at least in part, by the Nazis, they are then inspired by pop culture depictions of Nazis, and notably that would be Indiana Jones. In two of the Indiana Jones movies, the Nazis feature as the main antagonists, and they're depicted as fanatical about obtaining supernatural and religiously significant artifacts to bring to hitler and glorify the fuhrer so the red ribbon army these guys are the first true villains in dragon ball and yes pilaf is an antagonist but he's more of an opportunist he just would be willing to live and let live more or less and even tries to leave goku and the gang out of the proceedings by just stealing the dragon balls while they're asleep he doesn't necessarily want to harm anyone only if he just thinks there's no other options the Red ribbon Army choose violence first they're evil and they're Goku's first introduction to people who simply refuse to be redeemed speaking of the the just the Nazi connection real quickly that's that is something that is there's there's like some decent scholarly stuff you can look into about that but it's also been like that's like the basis for Wolfenstein as well. Yep. Uh, that that the Nazis were just obsessed with with supernatural or religious artifacts. So yeah,
0: and, and like you said, it is it is somewhat based in history. There was a lot of looting of uh, religious artifacts. There was also a lot of looting of of art art pieces and and um, just whatever sort of like crazy jewels and stuff like they could get from from all these old castles and stuff around Europe.
1: Yeah. Hitler and the Holy Grail, you know. I mean, <laughs> that's like a big trope in in storytelling. You know, a lot but it, of Nazi stuff, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, and it and it was a. I mean, it was based on it. it, it Himmler wanted to find the Holy Grail himself, and I think I think uh, Hitler's thing was more he wanted to find like Mjolnir, like Thor's hammer, or something. Like it's <laughs> it's all kind of crazy, but at the same also- time, it's. They were, it's they that were thing also of looking
0: for um, the spear that pierced Jesus Christ on Oh the
1: the, the, the is it the sword or the the, the longinus right it's like I think yeah, that's I what think it's called the longinus the like longinus the lance roll. or something like that speaking of that there's a really good movie directed not really good <laughs> there's a fairly good vampire short film directed by Ruhei Kitamura called like longinus or something like that and it's about like this Lance of Longinus, turning yes, people yeah, into vampires.
0: They also call it the Spear of Destiny. Spear, it's the a spear. Why did I? Or the uh, the Holy Spear.
1: Yeah. So that's a pretty cool little connection there. We've we've spun into into wild territory, but <laughs> so
0: the Nazis, the Nazis were interesting. I mean, they really were. They were horrible people, but they were interesting.
1: Oh no, it's. I mean, there's a reason why. There's a reason why, other than the battles themselves being maybe like a little more dynamic, World War II history and World War II films are so much more readily consumed by people than World War One. I. I mean, there's there's elements to it where every once in a while I'll I'll watch a World War One movie and go, boy, why don't we have more of these? Because like trench warfare just seems like such a playground for doing some really good storytelling cuz you could really do some good psychological storytelling but there's much more of an element of maybe it's maybe it's much more because with the nazis which with world war 2 you really had bad guys
0: that's exactly what i was going to say i think it had more to do with the propaganda surrounding the war as opposed to the war itself because it was built, it was definitely built. Especially if you look at like you know posters and political cartoons from the time of, hey, no, we got to go stop these bad people from doing bad things to good people.
1: And Whereas, I mean, the Nazis really were bad guys.
0: Like true, I mean, and 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 once they had won the war, they found out just how horrible it was. But yeah, it's def. I think it's definitely that leftover propaganda that really kind of calls to people to to consume that kind of media because it's very there's very clearly defined roles for good guys and bad guys in that conflict
1: right because even you you can even and they don't tend to connect with people as well but there's even like is it is the thin red line the one that's about like the the nazis and the russians i think so and it's not a bad movie it didn't do super well because the heroes were the russians rather than the the americans but i mean that's the you can always make the nazis the villains you know like
0: (laughs) well yeah i mean video games have been doing it for how long now
1: yeah red ribbon army they're based on the nazis kind of they're based on communism kind of i mean you could see those things at play Are they a political statement? Is Toriyama over here going, yay, USA, yay, Japan, yay, capitalism, and boo, communism, and boo, scary red armies? I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? I mean,
0: I don't see how it's not a political statement, (laughs) (laughs) especially when we we kind of got foreshadowing of this with Oolong kind of looking like a communist pig. Mm Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like like we mentioned earlier, like this is, you know, in the middle of the 80s, the Cold War is at its height. I think it's not so much a political statement as much as it is like, no, these are clearly bad guys. And I think people in that time period, if you were to ask them, like, hey, are the Russians like decent people? You'd probably more often than not get the answer. No, they're they're horrible communists. Why would you think they're good people? So while I I I can't see it as anything but a political statement, I think from the perspective of people in that time period, it's not as much political as it is just how they view the world.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a pretty a fairly accurate. Right? I Toriyama is I think trying not to make a political statement, you know, and I think he's despite basing certain design elements of the Red Ribbon Army on you know nazism and communism i think he's very much like leaving their their viewpoint off of the table right you know their their agenda is to find the dragon balls for commander red it's not to push any sort of agenda of their own onto the world right yeah they don't they don't really have an agenda aside from they want to rule the world (laughs) yeah they don't have like a political thesis behind them and so he's trying to pull that element out of it and i think yeah i think it's kind of one of those i think especially when you're someone like toriyama who we've talked about he is very heavily influenced by movies and very heavily influenced by tv and he doesn't ever really strike me as a political person at all And so when you're that kind of person who just kind of doesn't get, get into it at all. And I mean, especially like a Toriyama who just doesn't get into people at all. (laughs) True. And, and you kind of self isolate, you end up being whether knowingly or unknowingly somewhat influenced by like the propaganda around you. And I mean, we have propaganda in all of our media still to this day. I mean, just watch like any Michael Bay movie. It is basically a commercial for the army. (laughs) also true (laughs) so you're even if you are actively avoiding quote-unquote politics some of that is still kind of dripping through what you consume in media because of how media is funded so he is probably seeing images of like yeah the red menace and you know the the scary looking communists and, and that kind of thing in the way they're portrayed and going, Oh, that's a cool design element. It is something of a political statement of a, of a, this is bad and my other stuff is good. But like, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't think the words communism and capitalism ever came into Toriyama's mind on that, you know?
0: Right. And and that's why I don't necessarily think Especially for that time period, it was a, a, a political statement because it was more – I think it was more about him just trying to make it readily obvious that the Red Ribbon Army is just bad people. Right. Uh, because, I mean, like Goku himself doesn't stand for capitalism. He doesn't stand for democracy necessarily. He stands for, well, I'm going to do my own thing, and, and uh, I'm going to search for strength, and if you get in my way, I'm going to mess you up.
1: Yeah. Unless you're watching that one episode of Dragon Ball Z dubbed by Americans, where he is the fighter for justice and <laughs> and freedom and <laughs> I forget what I forget his whole speech, but it is like
0: It's very Superman of him in that yeah, Oh yeah,
1: oh yeah. I think you were you were kinda onto something you, you kinda clicked off a thing in in my head at least where I, I look at Toriyama similar to let's get our requisite Godzilla discussion into this.
0: (laughs) Of course. It's not an episode without a Godzilla discussion. Uh,
1: But the, the direct, the director most famously known for directing Godzilla movies, Ishiro Honda. I think of them both as more humanists. And I think you'll see that more overtly in Honda's work where he'll have a problem that comes up that the United Nations kind of works on together. And he won't, I mean, he sets his movies in Japan for obvious reasons, but like he'll have multicultural casts and and not feature Japan as the center of solving problems. It'll be like a UN resolution. Not resolution, but the UN will kind of solve the problem, or an American and a Japanese will solve the problem together. And it's a more humanist view that ultimately kind of culminates in a couple of his i'll say later movies with there being like a world government you see that at least a little bit in toriyama's work where earth has a president in the dragon ball universe it's a dog
0: (laughs) (laughs) which is incredibly humanist because we all realize that no one person should have that much power And we all know that dogs are better than human beings in every way. So of course we should have the dog rule the world, right?
1: Right. But, (laughs) but yes, Toriyama has his, his, his world is a world government. It's never very explicitly. This is Japan. This is China. This is the U S this is Russia. Right. I mean, there's, there's the obvious clues in the markers and we've talked about some of those for sure, but this The Dragon Ball world is not separated into nations. And so I, I think of Toriyama similar to Honda in that way of just being humanist. And so when they make a political statement, it's not necessarily my side is better than your side. It's, it's kind of one of those, and it might be a little bit of a cop-out to an extent, but it's kind of one of those like all sides are bad because we should all just be on the same side.
0: Yeah, I get what you're striving at.
1: And and I think I think that's kind of Toriyama's message ultimately. I mean, that's he always has his people in Dragon Ball at least who are fighting for a very specific, like all the people who are always fighting for like a very specific cause that could be construed as either being nationalistic or kind of jingoistic in some way are always the villains. They are, and even if they are more redemptive kind of villains which which uh, i'll say happens maybe a little bit later uh, with like the universal survival tournament they're misguided in their belief that you know my cause and my nation and my empire is more important than yours because the reality is we should all like and that's goku is a very just like we're we should all just kind of be happy unto ourselves without hurting others type of thing that in itself is a political statement, I guess, right? So you can't you can't be apolitical without being political.
0: <laughs> Unless maybe saying you're apolitical is the political statement?
1: Yeah, I mean that's that's yeah, that's what I'm kind of driving at, right? So <laughs> there is a political statement being made of some kind, but I don't think it's, you know, capitalism yay, communism boo type of thing. I don't I also don't think it's like yay US Japan, boo Germany Russia. For example.
0: Yeah, I could see that, definitely.
1: It's a it's a decent little episode. It introduces up to our to our antagonists. Now we haven't talked about this on here yet at all. This is I, I'm very curious and very I don't know if I'm excited. This has always kind of been my least favorite stuff. Really? Yeah. Why is that? Um part of it is that it's it's it feels quite a bit longer than like it feels like we're dealing with the red ribbon army for quite a bit longer than anything else at least in dragon ball Uh, arguable when you start getting into like frieza (laughs) um but so it feels like we're dealing with them for a very long time and again this is this is it's been a long time since i've gone through this portion of dragon ball it never feels like any of these antagonists are much of a match for goku it doesn't feel to me enough like they really push him enough
0: you know what's funny is i was thinking the exact same thing especially like with how quickly he takes care of silver it's just kind of like, well, you guys are trying to build these guys up to be these compelling villains. And then the fight takes all of two seconds.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I think I think by having it be generally just Goku's journey and <clears throat> never putting one of his friends in harm's way, which I think Balma gets involved in the – what is it? Is it General Blue?
0: Yeah. I think uh, she gets involved. Stuff,
1: yeah. Yeah, I think she gets involved in some of that. But like, by having it generally just be Goku who's kind of involved in this, he never takes any attack on him, no matter how nefarious the attack personally, because he just thinks of it as, oh, these people are just trying to beat me, and they'll do whatever it takes to beat me. And by taking kind of the friend aspect out of it, you never get this opportunity to show Goku that, like, no, these are like bad people.
0: I also think that like having his, his friends around makes for more compelling moments because like as as, we, as we'll see, especially in the next couple episodes, like at this point, by Earth standards, Goku's already essentially a superhero. like he's bulletproof, he's super fast, he's super strong, like there's almost nothing he can't do. Uh, he can fly around on a cloud. But having those friends who can't do those things get into trouble and then having to try and figure out how to get his friends out of those situations as opposed to how hard do I need to hit this guy to win made for a more interesting storyline. And I think that's a lot of the problem with this arc is that he just tears through these guys like tissue paper for the most part. Yeah. And it's it just there's no drama because of that.
1: Yeah, so I am curious and interested though to go through it because, you know, you know, going through it and looking at it with a more let's find some stuff to talk about for a podcast and let's try to find literary and cinematic inspirations. Maybe it'll make me look at some of this in a, in a new light. That is a little introduction to the Red Ribbon Army. Hey, Bikini, it seems like our friend is back for another pass. I thought our forces decreased the sensitivity on the proximity alarm after the tenth time that Ventuvi circled the planet.
0: They did. Look out the window.
1: Oh, listeners, I can hardly attempt to describe what Bikini and I are witnessing right now. The Leviathan that we first encountered some time ago and had seemingly followed us to this planet is in fact now hovering within the atmosphere of this planet and look and and now thousands of carbivore are pouring out of its vents riding on the many ray-like fish creatures that normally reside in and around the Ventuvi's underbelly and they're descending toward us
0: it was one of their transports
1: well obviously we realize this now but who could possibly have seen this coming
0: anyone just because it doesn't have obvious mechanics and wasn't literally shouting i am a floating death fortress assumed it was going to be fine
1: in my experience floating death fortresses announced themselves
0: Foot point now
1: prepare for battle anyway all stations prepare for battle listeners we'll take our leave of you here will this turn out to be a full-scale invasion will it prove to be more than a minor inconvenience find out next time and help us achieve our final forum is written and produced by Tom Guelli. It is performed by Dan Kinney and Tom Guelli. Our webmaster is Dan Kinney. Our theme music is provided by YouTube content creator, GVG Kit. Want to learn more about the Dragon Ball universe, including concept art, behind-the-scenes interviews, and recommendations from Jelly and Bikini? Connect with us on social media, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Final Forum Pod. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you receive your podcasts. And of course, make sure to share with your friends and family and help us spread the word of the glory of Lord Frieza. The Frieza Force thanks you for your listenership.